Hello, and welcome to Visually Sacred. My name is Arthur Agajanian, and I'm a Christian contemplative and essayist. In this podcast, I speak with thought leaders working in the intersection of art, visual culture, and religion. Thank you for joining me as we explore the rich and complex role of images in Christian history, culture, belief, and practice. In this episode of Visually Sacred, my guest is Dr. David Morgan. David is Professor of Religious Studies and Director of Graduate Studies in the Doctoral Program in Religion at Duke University, with an additional appointment in the Department of Art, Art History, and Visual Studies at Duke. He is a recipient of many grants and fellowships, including support from the National Endowment of the Humanities, the Getty Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Lilly Endowment, and fellowships at Yale University and Princeton University. David's doctoral work at the University of Chicago was in modern European art history, but after graduating, he quickly became interested in American religious history and popular imagery, resulting in a series of books, including Visual Piety, Protestants and Pictures, The Lure of Images, and The Forge of Vision, A Visual History of Modern Christianity, which appeared in 2015 and was the basis of the 2012 Cadbury Lectures that he was invited to deliver at the University of Birmingham in England. David is also interested in religious visual culture beyond Christianity and has explored various religious traditions and sought to theorize the study of visuality in two books, The Sacred Gaze and The Embodied Eye, Religious Visual Culture and the Social Life of Feeling. In 2018, he published Images at Work, The Material Culture of Enchantment, a study of the role that images play in producing enchantment in religion, magic, and everyday life during the modern era. His latest book, The Thing About Religion, which appeared last year, is an introduction to the material study of religion. In this episode, David and I discuss the nature of visual culture, both secular and religious, and the ways our beliefs and ideas about the world are influenced by the images we consume. We also explored how ideas about the sacred, enchantment, and revelation function through different modes of visual culture. I hope our conversation inspires your own inquiry into the power of images, including those that surround us every day. David, thanks for being here today. I've read a number of your books and have been following your work for a while now, and I'm excited to have the chance to talk with you about religious visual culture. Your work really goes into depth about how images influence religious belief and reflect our ideas and approaches to the spiritual. And I know you'll have some thought-provoking insights for everyone listening. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arthur. It's delightful to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Let's clarify our area of inquiry here. Some may understand the term visual culture to mean the discrete images and objects that reflect different aspects of society. But it's much more complex than that, isn't it? You actually define visual culture in your own words as domains of thought, imagery, and practice in any given culture. In fact, in your book, The Embodied Eye, you even wrote about how all the senses are included in the experience of images. Can you provide some examples? Well, I think it's important to move beyond a, a, a simple focus on the image to the world around it. And in particular, right. a particular part of that world involves the human being as a bot, an embodied reality that's interacting with the image and brings to it history, idiosyncratic needs, all kinds of concerns and impulses that we have to factor into our understanding if we want to really get at the power of the image. So I, I've spent a lot of time, for instance, watching people be standing in front of images, praying, venerating the image petitioning it, touching it, praying very heartfelt, passionate, often silent words before the image. So, and this really helped me understand that an image is more than a picture. It's more than a representation. It's a highly interactive device. 
and that it has a, a whole set of different relations with the, the spaces and people and other factors around it. So that's when we talk about visual culture, I think it's a, a term that directs us toward the image, but also you might say through it and around it and in front of it. Okay. What are the underlying principles shared by both religious and secular visual culture that contribute to what we can call an experience of the sacred? Can we find common features in images and objects, whether they're considered, as they say, high or low, that set them mm -hmm. apart from the ordinary? I, I think immediately of the, the experience of time that is involved in a parade or an art museum or, or a religious worship service. Um, all of these experiences create a separateness. They, they mark off a certain domain so that, so that particular events or feelings or relationships can be highlight, highlighted or heightened in that space. And I, I think you see that in secular culture, religious culture alike. It, it's, it's very common. It's one of the ways in which human beings create meaning and experience uh, themselves and their relationship to one another as special, as, as exerting a, uh, a demand on them, something that requires their attention, perhaps their devotion, devotion religious devotion, but one thinks also of, of devotion to the nation that, to which they belong, devotion to moral values or groups, kinship, um, anything that is larger than the individual and is a fundamental context in which the individual lives. That connection is accessed through ritual, through totems, through emblems, through images, flags, symbols of all kinds that are not simply indifferent. They, they are special objects because they provide access. And rich, their ritual deployment is how, you might say, they become special tools for enabling that, that connection. So the image is point of attention or emphasis out of which a, a series of actions might occur and the context in which all of this unfolds is one that is set outside of ordinary experience and relations is that yeah or yeah I'd I think that gets that gets at it. It's it's not you know ordinary is a very difficult term to define because it's very ordinary for a Christian to pray. It's very ordinary for a Christian sure. to go to church on Sundays. It happens weekly, weekly throughout life. So it's not as if I think there were a space or a domain where the secular where the the sacred doesn't exist. It, it, right. It's purely secular. It it, it it's. I think humans are the dynamic factor here. They are the ones that create a heightened sense of presence. And this happens everywhere and anywhere. Of course, some spaces in, in, in a particular religious tradition are, are, are maybe more sacred than others. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not unusual to see special things happening anywhere, anytime, given the human need for them. Yeah, and many spiritual teachers, for example, will argue that the sacred is really everywhere. The divine mm -hmm. is everywhere and in a sense underneath everything. So this yeah. division that we make, this is a duality that we've created through the way yeah. our minds work, right? Between the sacred and the secular. So when I'm, when I'm dividing them up in terms of how I'm talking to you about this, we understand that it's for the sake of clarification, but that, yes, I'm glad you kind of pointed to that, that we have to remember that ultimately everything is part of the same oneness 
of mm-hmm. of experience. I I certainly uh, I think that. so. I think human beings. Um, I mean, we we like to think of time as some absolute reality, but it's not. It's 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 largely subjective. We create a sense of time. Yeah, I like the Greek term kairos, is that special time. That's and and what we're talking about in religious behavior, religious practice, is just a kind of sensuous embodied awareness of the presence of yes. or this whatever is you know a god a saint a, a demon a new age um you know the a revelation of some sort that it uh, comes to the religious devotee by virtue of the ritual manipulation of space and time to to so what we're talking about, I guess, ultimately is a kind of accommodation that human beings rely on to, to, as I say, gain access to something or the sensation of something as, as supremely important. Yeah. It's, I'm also fascinated in your writing when you discuss these non-religious contexts um, according to the same principles of a, a shared understanding or um, a, a community that holds certain objects and images sacred when you talk about nationalism, for example, or mm-hmm. when you talk about the use of certain national symbols in the United States as yeah. um, things that groups of people gather around identify with and create rituals towards. And I'm struck particularly in the contemporary context with the political divide in this country Mm -hmm. and the strong feelings on the extremes of the political spectrum. We hear a lot about tribalism and this sort of, this this strong identification with a certain set of ideas that have images that are connected to them is it really brings out i mean the the body politic behaves a lot like religious sex in their differences and in their commitment to certain ideas to the point of uh, of destroying lives Mm -hmm. it's it's very pertinent to today i mean the the same kind of behavior that 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 you're talking about that that people participate in, in in large numbers around images and ideas, the ideas that are connected to them that they hold I, sacred. I th- yeah, I, I think what you're describing fits very nicely Emile Durkheim's description of, of religion, his, his overarching definition of religion as uh, something that produces community. It produces this intense set of relations, usually organized around a totem yeah. that is engaged and charged with social energy through ritual and protected by various taboos and uh, mm. practices and uh, usually separate from general access. And, and this applies, as he knew well, to nationalism and to the, the devotion to the a flag, for instance, and and it helps. It, it it's really quite helpful for understanding um, many different religious traditions and religious practices. So it's a a theory of religion that is still with us and that is, um, I think, favored by a lot of scholars of religion because of its ability to, of its breadth, its flexibility for describing human behavior. Mm-hmm. Are there some specific non-religious contexts other than what I was describing in general terms that really stand out to you as replicating the patterns of religious belief and devotion in in, the, in terms of what's going on right now or or in, in the history of um, the, in the social history of the United States or the political history of the United States? What are some of the yeah. kind of great sort of points of um, connection? Uh, yeah. Or a, uh, yeah, I, guess, I, I yeah. wouldn't. I would. Yeah, I wouldn't say that they replicate religion. I would say they they are a version of. They are religion. And the one I'm thinking of 
is the fascinating development in the 19th century in the United States. Uh, for a long time, the Bible was considered by many Americans as the cornerstone of the nation. And uh, as an expression of that, many Americans wanted the Bible to be a textbook in the public school. Right. Because it could, they believe, teach the values that were necessary for producing loyal citizenry. Yeah, um, so the, the religious ideas and the ideas of, of nationhood were completely superimposed. Like there was no distinction between the two, right? Yeah, I mean, for many, not all Americans, of course, but for many Americans, you know, God basically crafted the idea of the United States. And uh, I mean, there are a lot of Americans who still believe that. Oh, that 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 idea is uh, uh, alive and well right now. Yeah, sure. indeed, indeed. But what's interesting is that a number of groups, both Christian and, and non-Christian, started to challenge this in court over the course of the 19th century. And eventually the Bible was well, increasingly removed from the classroom. and uh, But uh, what took its place, uh, I've studied, is is the flag, the national emblem. Mm -hmm. it, in the late 19th century, the Pledge of Allegiance was produced, and then it became closely associated with school rituals around the turn of the century every morning, you know. And, and I'm mad. It's a public school kid. I... I started every day with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag that, that hung in the schoolroom. Yeah. And this was understood to be an unassailable practice and symbol, and I would say image of, even icon in some sense, of nationhood. What you saw or, or were meant to see when you looked at that flag we get a we get a taste of it in the in the very words of the pledge of allegiance i pledge allegiance to the flag and the republic for which it stands so you're not just talking about the flag as a symbol it is a material presence i pledge allegiance mm. to this flag and everything that it stands for all of that it symbolizes that's that's and, it makes me think of the eucharist yeah yeah it has that kind of and for some you know that was that was um a point of contention. There were court cases in the 20th century that said the Jehovah's Witness was a group in particular in a famous court case that said, "You're listen, you're forcing a religion down my throat mm -hmm. and I find this idolatrous to worship the flag. Yeah. And and the, the Supreme Court eventually found in their favor. So I think perfect Durkheim, you know, you, you can take the Christianity out, but as one religion, by removing the Bible and and language about Jesus and all, all of that, but the human desire for some kind of organizing totem right. that will structure and bless the group and define the group, this is a, a deep human impulse, and you know it happens one way or another often. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how changes in their representation of spiritual ideas reflects or influences changes in religious communities. What are some of the most significant shifts in the history of religious visual culture in the United mm -hmm. States? And how did changes in visualizing the sacred influence belief and practice over time? Can you share some mm -hmm. direct correspondences? I think the one that I've spent the most time pondering is in addition to the this fascinating shift from Bible to flag, is the shift in imagery of Jesus um, from a kind of didactic pedagogical device to um, a kind of paper icon, a, a devotional image that Protestants as well as many others a display in the home and other places, not just in church, as as a presence, you know, as something not just a symbol, not just a reminder, but as a, a presence. I've been really intrigued by that process over the course of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, how this has changed. It, I mean, Protestants 
always had imagery. I mean, Martin Luther had some of the earliest editions of his New Testament illustrated. He They carried woodcuts. He thought, you know, images were very helpful mnemonic devices and pedagogical devices. They could help teach scripture to believers. So there have always been images around, portraits and illustration, Bible illustrations, that sort of thing. But there was often a kind of tension in Protestant culture about, you know, the status of the image. If it, if it, if it clung closely to text, Protestants perhaps felt most comfortable with it because they could decode it. And they understood the image really as a, a device that leaned on text. So it was an, as an illustration. It was an illustration. Yeah. It was secondary in that right. sense. The real truth was in the word. And then the image came just as a kind of afterthought to help clarify the word or point the way to the word or explain what the words, illustrate the words. Useful, certainly a useful device, particularly for teaching children or, or adults. But if you're thinking about art, um, it, it, you know, where the image is kind of autonomous, where it has its own power, mm. where it, it affects one directly without the need for text, without the need for words. It has no ancillary status, but is a primary agent shaping human feeling, shaping human thought. This is what historically Protestantism had was nervous about because they 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 felt that 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 was tantamount, or in fact was idolatrous because right. images shouldn't have that autonomy. But I think in the course of the nineteenth century, what's interesting is the invention of paper as the basic instead of rag, instead of older models of of parchment and and uh, print technology. The emergence of paper as the popular medium for book production in the late 18th, early 19th century and the, and the efflorescence of American print culture in places like Philadelphia, New York, found that images were extremely attractive to consumers. Um, and organizations like the American Tract Society made ambitious use of images. To start, they would use them simply as illustrations, usually as covers for tracts or Bibles and or, or school books. But then increasingly, they, they illustrated their books with all kinds of images. And the images became full page. Um, sometimes they would issue singular prints with very, very little text. But basically, the image was becoming more and more an agent, more and more a kind of autonomous carrier of meaning or a provocateur, an agent of, of mm. thought and feeling. And that was applied to Jesus too. And his, his imagery goes from being very small to being very large. A number of print technologies are developed in the course of the 19th century, large images, inexpensive, a lithography, various forms of engraving, and then eventually photography, that um, I think it had a, a, a profound effect on visual practices among Christians, particularly among Protestants. And they, it, they, they came to understand that in both in their song and in prayer life and in imagery that you know, Jesus was present and that he was there to be talked to. He was there. This evangelicalism very much developed and pursued this active felt presence of, of Jesus as the personal savior. And there was a an imagery that, that facilitated and supported that kind of piety. So uh, right. that's a, a major shift. I think that's quite fascinating. What do you think of the more current representations of Jesus that take into account archaeological or anthropological mm -hmm. evidence, historical evidence, where he is recreated in a way that's supposed to be more authentic to mm -hmm. where he came from ethnically, racially, um, you know, this, this drive to be more accurate, mm -hmm. more factual, 
this is what Jesus actually would have looked like. You see um, digital, I guess, recreations or the help of, of di digital technology in doing this. And then you see illustrators uh, mm -hmm. rendering this this very different looking Jesus than 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 the fair skin, you know, mm -hmm. light haired one that you know were the, the, the classic uh, American yeah. Jesus image. What yeah. does anything different there, or is it just sort of a continuation of the same? Yeah, so it's issues? an interesting it's an interesting question because what it always makes me think about is what's at the root. The root is often particularly among Protestant folks, is a quest for the likeness of Jesus. That yeah, is, I'm, I'm curious about that like? drive. Yeah. 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 What was he like? Now, at, at our point in the 21st century, we look back at the 20th and 19th century Jesuses. For that matter, you just keep going back until, you know, the 7th, 8th century when Jesus, images of Jesus become more prevalent, Jesus always looks like those who are picturing him, either physiologically like them, racially, ethnically, or ideologically like them. He yeah, matches, I see the yeah, yeah, I see the new ver the the newer versions as the ideological, where there's yeah. this there's this attempt to kind of to to um, speak to uh, a more what socially just. Uh, yeah. approach to the social idea. progressive uh, political yeah. progressive De decolonization uh, yeah uh, because they have moral ethical ideals and they um, understand Jesus as championing those ideals right so why wouldn't he look like those ideals uh, mm. and uh and it's certainly everybody I I think in the history of Christianity who honors an image of Jesus is striving to see what matters to them. You know, um, it, it may be social justice, it may be racial justice, it may be gender uh, uh, justice, it may be the pride of race. It, you know, Jesus was a white guy because white is best. Jesus yeah. was a black guy because African Americans have suffered right. centuries of oppression from white. You know, this was Toni Morrison's fascinating take in mm -hmm. Bluest Eye, then a beautiful novel. Uh, so you know, Jesus becomes a, essentially a screen on which we project our own needs. Is that? I don't, I don't, I, I, that sounds too negative because humans need symbols, they need icons, they need devices that help them transcend themselves. So it could be that by imaging Christ as black, white Americans bec can become more conscious of the critical role that race plays in human relations. And, and you know, and there's there may be indeed be uh, an important political tool in, in in envisioning Christ that way. Envisioning Christ as gay, envisioning Christ as a woman, right? You know, as transgender. What it, 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 these things matter to human beings, not because necessarily they're I, I, making idols of themselves, but because they are suffering certain conceptions, certain social practices, and the ideal of Christ is to help them transcend those, not be victimized by those. So could it I also think, be? I'm just I'm wondering if it could also be about. Um relatedness that if if one one is reaching out to relate more to Jesus sure. that that Jesus reflects one's one's ethnic or, or racial oh, or, yeah, or gender absolutely. group. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, that, I think to connect you know with Jesus as one of us. Yeah, to come back to Durkheim, he said religion is an eminently social thing. It's something that people do in groups. And uh, that can become extremely problematic. You know, you, you you think of social injustice that one group inflicts on another, and they do it with their Jesus on a banner. But it can also be incredibly uplifting and liberating too, because if it pulls people together rather than 
pushes them apart. You can see, I think, that particular images of Jesus or any other religious leader could be quite powerful. Yes. You've written on how visual culture produces enchantment, and I'm, I'm really interested in that word. How do you distinguish spiritual enchantment, which we can probably, I think most people can probably imagine what that refers to, but how would you distinguish that from the effects of enchantment in commodity culture, mm-hmm. which, which I think of actually more as seduction? Who and what does enchantment serve in each instance? Can mm-hmm. we can we break that down a little bit? I know it's a large subject, but yeah. um, to kind of simplify the sort of the, the, the mm-hmm. basic um, dichotomy there. Yeah, yeah, that's a big big one. I mean, enchantment yeah. has has many meanings. How are you thinking about it in your own work? Yeah, your own writing. Well, I think it's. I, as I find it in one book, it, enchantment is often or quite commonly the little things that have a disproportionate effect. Mm. You know, you think of the baseball player who comes to the plate and does the cross or has some ritual with the way he tightens his gloves or moves his hat. Right. And he does that repeatedly. You watch them. They'll, oh, yeah. You know, it's a very common thing. And 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 they're very open about this. They love to talk about this. And I wouldn't I wouldn't change it. If I change it, I miss or I do it affects my performance. Well, these are little things, incidental things that have conceivably a disproportionate effect. And I think you see this. I mean, we you know the the secular ideal of modernity is that we left enchantment behind. You know, mm-hmm. Weber's famous thesis about you know the rise of rational thinking eventually eliminated all modes of enchantment. But it's simply not true, and I think it's not true because I suspect we're hardwired to solve problems. That's the chief thing. And you can solve problems rationally. You can also solve them irrationally or irrationally. And I think enchantment is a kind of felt or emotional mode of solving problems. You know, the baseball player has a problem. I've got to hit that darn ball. And maybe this ritual will enable me to do that. And that, you know, it, it works in many ways. Does it change the universe? Maybe. But probably what it does, we might agree, is it changes the individual. You know, it calms him, it focuses his efforts, it reassures him. Um, it's an irrational thing, but it works, you know. So with that kind of broad definition of enchantment, I've been really intrigued to apply it to the use of images, uh, uh, the the role of rituals and religious life. But also, I, I don't want to limit myself to religion, I think we see enchantment, you know, in everyday life, far beyond any particular religious belief or practice. Um, Can you think of an example of a, um, say, an image from advertising that oh, yeah. um, that that sure uh, inspires an, an, a sense of that? Uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, you remember that uh, credit card? I don't remember which credit card it was, but it was a, a series of. Sometimes it was children. Sometimes it was an adult. The one I, I made a picture of when I found it was a woman window shopping and looking at a mannequin that had a, a, a set of clothes on it. That, and she's just, she's, the photographs are from behind. So you see her, her body in front of the mannequin's body. And, it's a, and then, you know, the credit card is saying, you know, make your wish come true, something like that, whatever. What that image intrigues me about is that enchantment has so much to do with visualization, with imagination, Mm -hmm. with projecting oneself into another set of circumstances. And in doing so, making that other set of circumstances possible, real, maybe still ideal, but something to shoot for. In that respect, enchantment is a fundamental human practice of visualization. And so it's tied in, it's inextricably, I think, bound up with imagination, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, and this is something that 
this is a, a key faculty that has not often been included in the study of religion. Um, in fact, in some many religions, imagination is considered negative. It's considered a kind of un unruly right. uh, power of the human soul that needs to be quelled. It's a threat. It's a threat. Yeah, it's a threat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, can't, can't let your mind wander, otherwise uh, evil forces will yeah. uh, take over. Right, because right. it, it, it deals in the language of the discourse of images. And Im images were considered often dangerous because they slip into your mind through yes. dreams and through the physical world, and they carry with them emotional ties that can distract one or fool one or, you know, overcome the true the truth in some way because of their appeal yeah and you can think of uh, lots of examples of this in the history of religion I, I mean there's i don't think there's many of the major religions that i've looked at that in some dimension don't have imagery they have imagery, but they also have domains of the religion that prescribe imagery. So religions are never just one thing. They're just never they're never one opinion or one doctrine or one practice. They're they're always mixtures. So in Protestants, you can Protestants you can find all kinds of images, but you can also find someone like John Calvin saying images can never teach anything about the truth of the Bible. You have to go to the Bible for that. In Buddhism, you can find all kinds of incredible iconography, but other traditions within Buddhism saying images are a distraction, don't get stuck with them. You should you should be able to yeah. meditate without them. So it's 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 fascinating how these sort of iconophobic and iconophilic strands run through most religions. Yeah. So we have to be specific. And precise when we're talking about, we have to be careful of overarching statements because mm -hmm. uh, even with Christianity, there are so many different types of Christianity. Sure. Um, we live in a world dominated by images. We strongly relate, of course, as, as you've been explaining, uh, there's a strong psychological connection and, um, and need to project oneself out into the world through images, to find oneself in the world through images. And images are very powerful in terms of how they condition our perception of reality itself. So I'd like to ask you, which of today's most widely circulating popular images, specific images or a type or a classification of images, do mm -hmm. you think are the most potent? Mm -hmm. um, leaving out the flag, Maybe things that are fleeting, things that are flavor of the month, actually. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd actually like to, I, I'm actually curious in the, um, in the superficial in this case, mm -hmm. what, what today is happening that you see um, really drawing people in and, and creating the types of effects that we're seeing. And then I think we can extrapolate from that and mm -hmm. find our own examples of, of, of these types of things or this kind of or classification that, that this might um, fall into. Sure. Well, I think the very current and very new visual classification that fascinates me the most is the meme. Mm. Uh, sure. The, yeah. the, the meme, meme. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's on Twitter. It's in all, all forms of social media. And they're fascinating to me because they are based on recycling old iconography. You know, when the memes when the memes started getting popular, I was actually confused because, you know, I saw images with text on them, and I've seen things like that before. But the word was new, and I thought, mm -hmm. is this all it is? Is this what people are talking about? I mean, mm -hmm. what's what's the big fascination? Well, it comes. I think from, uh, because it's so simple, right? I mean, yeah. from a graphic standpoint, it's mm -hmm. there's nothing, mm -hmm. there's nothing different about it in terms of, of the vocabulary that we're familiar with visually. No, it's it's a kind of it's a term that tries to designate a unit, an identifiable unit of visual material 
that is transportable. It's all the the meme works entirely on the concept of transposition. You take it from one context and you put it in another. And in doing so, it carries some of its previous meaning, but it comes with a twist. And that makes them funny. And they're often used in humor. A lot of humor is circulated on uh, Instagram and other social platforms. Are you talking using... about the, the, I'm sorry, you're talking about the recontextualization of an image, say a still from a television show. Yeah. Uh, or, but... or you see them a lot from classical art from Greece and Rome through the Renaissance, um, taking them out of their original context. Like one of the famous uh, sort of techniques is to find some strange gesture or facial expression mm -hmm. and then match to that a, a common experience today. You know, this is, you see those often and they're, they're chucklers, you know, you see it, it's amusing for about three seconds and then you, you pass on to the next one or, or you, whatever you were doing. But it's intriguing because, uh, you know, Christian art, which I've studied more than any other, is often, not always, but very often organized in terms of iconographical units. We know this is Jesus because he has these attributes. We know this is St. Paul. And the right. success of the image as a carrier of meaning is in, in fact the observation of those iconographical guidelines. Right. Um, so there's something about memes that are fascinating to me because they share a lot of the visual logic of traditional art, of religious art in particular. Um, and that applies to Christian art, Roman art, you know, Buddhist art. It can be extracted. You don't see a lot of Buddhist art memes, though, in the US because people don't know what that means. Mm. So it's fascinating. The more I think about memes, we can dismiss them as ephemeral nonsense, or you can understand it as the, one of the ways in which cultures keep connections alive. Because this picture of Jesus that's then recontextualized isn't severed totally from its past. It carries some of that with it because that's what makes it funny the you know the juxtaposition of the present and the past uh so uh I, I don't know it's fascinating to think about images and if you look at the history of art you can find these kinds of appropriations itself you know artists look at an artist from two centuries before they take the work recontextualize it and the art historian looking at it can tell well here are here is its lineage we know where yeah. it comes from but now it's got a whole new context, a whole new meaning. It, you know, it, it that the original artist and the original community for which that image was important were oblivious. That wasn't part of their horizon at all. So this, uh, the meme actually has a visual logic and set of practices that are really shared quite broadly. But but the. What's the outcome of that? I mean, how does that influence? Does that have anything other than a, a superficial? Give us a superficial. Remind us of of the past. It's how memory. It's how memory works. I mean, ask anyone about what do you know about ancient Greece? Just anybody, and they're probably going to think their mind will instantly dredge up images of the Venus de Milo or the mm -hmm. Parthenon. Ask them to tell you, give you a historical treatise on the Parthenon, and they probably can't say more than, well, I think it's in Athens. But that image is planted there. And that image planted there means it has potential to grow and to develop. It's a node. It, it can become a node, a kind of connector. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is, you know, this is how human learning takes place. So in keeping imagery in circulation, mm -hmm one creates the potential for its elaboration, its enrichment. Right. Interesting. Um, can you talk about your more recent interest in the visual culture of revelation? First of all, what does that mean? Well, you know, tradition tends to think of, traditionally one thinks of revelation as, as a sort of the sudden appearance of 
a transcendent truth, as if it were just on the other side of reality, waiting to break in, you know, to erupt. And then, but in terms of history, in terms of cognitive science, in terms of the history of image making and and use, that that notion of revelation just doesn't get me very far. I'm not interested in in the, in, in 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 allowing that to be the sort of default definition of revelation. I've been very interested in looking at the say the history of visions and dreams in in Christianity, mm. and um, it's intriguing that in a number of instances people dream and people envision the art that they've seen uh, in, yeah. in their worship life and their prayer life, devotional lives. And unapologetically, you know, that's what Jesus looks like. You know, I spoke with a woman in Finland once who had seen Jesus, she told me, and I said, well, what did he look like? And she said, but he looked, he looked basically like Warner Salman's head of Christ, you know, that very common head of Jesus. And I, I thought, well, why would he look like that? Well, there's very good reason why he would look like that. Was the re- the picture of Jesus that she was given as a child? That was the picture that her mother helped taught her to pray before and to help envision the heavenly being to which she was addressing her prayers. So that image is deeply, deeply um, ensconced in her imagination and her religious life. So, frankly, you know, why wouldn't you know, she see that. That's exactly the kind of visual language that has um, that that her unconscious uses. I think to uh, to dream. So that's a fascinating fact, and it's and and others have studied this, and it's it's hardly a, a novel observation on my part. But what it does suggest is that if we're going to understand revelation visually. In visual terms, we need to think about a more complex set of relationships. Revelation is not just the sacred, whatever it is, popping into reality. It is a more uh, cyclical kind of process, you know, involving art, involving imagination, involving mm-hmm. dreaming, involving neural phenomena. And we can find people envisioning the, the imagery that they've seen they or they have visions and then they describe them to an artist who creates an image that fits that image and it's a kind of evolving dialogical process um, in which art plays I think a fundamental role and in which imagination needs to be theorized and understood as a key faculty you know, in in making revelation happen, it sounds um, like a de- it sounds like you're describing visual culture generally. The, yeah, in terms yeah, of what I, you're I, saying. I, yeah, I think you could. I, I've been very interested, for instance, in studying the uh, web telescope phenomena. You might say visually watching or following um, people at NASA talking mm-hmm. about the imagery that comes and the, and the kind of erratic glow. They evoke when they talk about these images of things 400 million light years away. Um, I, I think discovery is a little bit like revelation. You discover something that you didn't know was there, and it has an impact. And you to discover something, you have to use structures and filters that you've developed before you discover it. So they enable the discovery but then the discovery changes the sort of uh, uh, framework it's in its own way. So it's a kind of ongoing process. It yeah. stretches the mind in new shapes so that we can now think and imagine differently and see things that were there maybe always, but that but, but had been in, invisible to us. So I yeah. really do think the, the human is playing this dynamic role in a larger process. And... Uh, see where it goes. Yeah, I think about the the idea of the the paradigm shift. A Thomas Kuhn's mm-hmm. famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and how certain uh, conditions need to be in place in order for a new paradigm 
to emerge. And then as they're, they're the people in the avant-garde or, you know, the people who sort of who are in the forefront of the culture who, who break through. And then eventually these things become part of the, 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 the general understanding sure. of a yeah. society. They become normalized and they become part of our, part of our knowledge that they become the mm -hmm. new truths. Um, yeah. I think that that happens in, in art that, you know, painters often work yeah. in series and when they start the series, they're experimenting with things. They create a new vocabulary, a new means of seeing. And by the time they finish it, they have achieved things that they couldn't have achieved from the start without that long process because it recalibrated their vision. It, it introduced new ways of thinking and feeling and seeing. But to the and, rest of the world, it seems like oftentimes seems like these things just came out of nowhere. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. That uh, yeah, but that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that revelation needs to be seen as a process, not as a sudden wham bang. Here it is, you know. Um, and I suppose you know, some religious folks might see that as a kind of deconstruction or demythologizing of of revelation, but. I, I I don't think of it as that way. I think of it as trying to understand the human role, because we're not passive observers here. Right. You know, we are dynamic agents in the world we create through imagination, through reason, through various practices, human relationships, institutions, and rituals, and uh, just understanding how that works is. Is critical, and one of the things that a lot of visual culture studies haven't done very well to date is, although I think the attention now is turning very actively, is to understand neurology in better terms, in the the nature of imagery in the brain and its relationship to imagery outside of the brain, and how these these interact. Um, that's a real opportunity, I think, for us to. Uh, to move along. And I think applying that to the experience or the imagery of imagination is what I want to try to do in this uh, next uh, book project. When I think about the, the sudden bursting in of, of revelation versus the slow process of development that can lead to a breakthrough, I think about it in spiritual terms as the way spiritual maturity occurs, that there's a process of discipline that has to be in place. And then one gradually deepens their spiritual awareness. And then certain things can be achieved that are, are simply not possible when you're new to a practice or when you are spiritually immature. Mm -hmm. So it's, you can find a lot of different parallels and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the art, the art development um, example is a, I think a, a, a great one. It's very clear that artists work through a process of experimentation. They're influenced by the past. They draw on the art that comes before them. They speak, they're in conversation with art history mm -hmm. and they, and if they're not, then they are going to uh, either reinvent the wheel or be deluded into thinking that they've discovered something that's, mm -hmm. that nobody's ever seen before. So you mm -hmm. have to, you have to know your history and you have to do the work and mm -hmm. then gradually you get to a point, you can relate this to athletics as well, you know, like a figure skater, for example, you know, all of the work that's involved but then when you see the you see the performance yeah it's a revelation to the audience and it's, it's mm -hmm. it seems effortless yeah. yeah yeah i think for me this is most visually poignant when i go to the retrospective of an artist's work mm. i was yeah. in paris many years ago and i i saw an exhibition of cezanne's paintings and it was organized chronologically Mm -hmm. And, you know, he started out, I think, a very humble artist, not not very good. His drawing was horrible and, and you know, his application of paint was clumsy. But what you got to see over the course of his life 
was an amazing evolution um, based on hard work and constant hard work. And you see these discoveries taking place and that transformed his vision, transformed his ability to see what was in front of him. And, um, and then to engage that with the image, the image always has a kind of separate status, you know, for him, the painting wasn't nature. It was what he was seeing. It was, it was this complex dialogue and it's just remarkable. Another artist I love, an abstract artist is Richard Diebenkorn from out your way. I love his work, a Bay area painter and, he, right. he, you know, you get to see this fascinating evolution of his true. explorations and uh, what he achieved um, over the course of time. And it's, it's cumulative. It gets more and more. And, and, and his, his, his vision is more, um, I mean, it, it unfolds and uh, there's a depth to it. Or I was in London and I looked at, I saw a great exhibition at the Tate Modern of uh, Giorgio Morandi's Still Lives. Mm. And it's the same set of bottles and boxes over the course of 30 or 40 years. And, but the subtlety that uh, emerged and, uh, you know, the subtle balances of tone and color and form, right. it's remarkable. Well, if you want to see a really radical development, look at the work of Mondrian. Yeah. I'll never forget From the, early the exhibition, yeah. exhibition I saw at a, at a fairly young age at the National Gallery of Art, where you know, it began uh, the early part of his career. He was doing these post-impressionist uh, mm -hmm. landscapes. And, and then where does he end up, you know, this extreme geometric abstraction and, mm -hmm. and, and limited palette. Um, and to see that kind of development, it's, it's fascinating on a number of levels, but also um, sometimes we're, we can project ourselves into um, the, the artist's process and, and we can imagine almost the artist working through problems. And, and to mm -hmm. see the artist's thinking and engagement with their materials and with the images uh, through a pro through a series of works, where we can kind of get involved in that. That's extremely exciting. Yeah, to me, indeed, indeed. Now, I also wanted to ask you, David, why are the things we're discussing important for all Christians, and how do these issues impact the larger world? Mm -hmm. Well, I can't speak for all Christians, of course, but I, I do, I mean, from my perspective, Christians live in the same world as everyone else. And, um, they share the same neurology, <laughs> uh, as everyone. And, uh, we live in a sort of capitalist, not sort of, you know, sort of hyper capitalist world in uh, North America and that's shared with other parts of the world. Um, and, that means that we're all of us struggling for some kind of purchase on a world that in many ways, I think we have to admit could do without us. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not always a, a happy place to be. So understanding, you know, the power of images, the power of uh, the processing and the nature of visual culture, the effect images have on us the effect that our, we imagine our own images exert on the world around us, the images that get into our head and, and become, you know, icons of what we feel matters. These are processes that are, can be very enlightening. They can be, you know, victimizing and oppressive. So understanding these visual dynamics, I think, is incumbent upon anyone who, who, you know, values self-awareness. And I think the other part of this that's really critical is the role that images play socially in, 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 and we see this so much in the political culture these days and the cultural politics of values, and the role of propaganda and caricature and, uh, 
slander, really, uh, and uh, the misrepresentation of others through advertising, through journalism, through you know the kind of hateful imagery that groups circulate. Um, and we, one, one is at a real disadvantage if one doesn't have a critical understructure in our world. And that, that, that clearly must apply to Christians who then add an, a fascinating component in their own lives to thinking about the role that images play in the life of faith. That must be very important to think through and to think through in more than the sort of simple idol versus icon kind of dichotomy that, you know, is often discussed. Um, to think of images as more than symbols, you know, sort of abstract devices that are easily decoded and then deliver a kind of information. I think, you know, to understand the life of imagery within one's faith and church tradition, this is... Uh, I don't know. I, I would imagine it, it's a it's an opportunity to deepen one's faith. And in, in the larger world, it seems to me that when we understand how images work, we are in a place where we can actively contribute and critically think through the messages that we're given about what constitutes our our reality mm -hmm. and 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 engage in a way that that's productive and, and creative right. and so many yeah. of us too uh, i think about this all the time are becoming image creators ourselves we're contributing mm -hmm. to the pool of images because of the easy access to you know graphic technology yeah. so we're more and more putting our own sort of imprint on the world of images and, and worse. Yeah. If you think about just social media, how many images so, does the yeah. average person get on their phone that have been composed by friends and, and other people that they know? Yeah. How many of those images are they going to see before they see an yeah. image of the Parthenon in a meme right. or anywhere else? Mm -hmm. I think the power the power of imagery in this regard is, is critical to understand it. Im images have this fascinating ontology. They're, they, they're, they're, they're edges. They, they sink into the flesh. You know, we can't always discern where they begin and where they end. And the I I imagery we look at, you can, you might, you can say the same certainly about music, and I think about other sensory forms. But I know more about images than those, so I, I'll focus on imagery. But it's very easy for us to look at an image and then to miss its depth. That is to say, to miss what distinguishes that image from the reality it portrays and what distinguishes that image from me. Because images are this, these powerful devices that sink into us and connect us with things outside of us. I think it's, it's really... That that that's both the blessing and the curse of the image. You know, it, it can be used to snag and oppress. It can also be used to inwardly transform. It has those dual powers, depending on the nature of the image and who produced it and what are the conditions under which one encounters it. Now, you can, you know, the, the history of religions are full of of iconoclastic moments where a kind of extreme answer was, since we can't trust images, we'll simply outlaw them. This, this just never works. I mean, human beings are stubborn characters. If you tell them they can't do something, they're going to want to do that. So if you tell people they can't have an image, it's not going to work. So it's a better strategy, I would think, is to understand the dynamics of imagery, you know, and how some images we accept and honor and, and other images we attempt to distance from ourselves or extricate. These, th this is really the, the meat and potatoes of what I'm, I study as a, an art historian who's engaged in the history of religious imagery. 
these dynamics of the image and the visual practices that put images to work. Fascinating stuff. Well, David, thank you so much for talking with me about these issues. It's been really helpful for me in expanding my awareness about the power of images to shape our view of ourselves, others, and the society in which we live. I'm always excited by the depth of your work and the way you deconstruct how images and objects signify with fascinating examples across a wide range of traditions and forms. I wish you the best in your future work. Thank you, Arthur. It was a pleasure to join you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Visually Sacred. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Arthur Agajanian, please visit my website at imageandfaith.com. You can also join my Facebook group, Contemplatives and Conversation, and follow me on Twitter at Art Agajanian. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Visually Sacred. Thanks for joining us.